everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. I live in Joshua Tree, and I'm pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. Today we're going to talk about Medusa, the woman with snakes as hair and the petrifying stare. Medusa is probably one of the better known figures from ancient Greek mythology, which is kind of ironic because there's very little mythology about her. I would say that she looms much larger in our collective psyche than she does on the printed page. When most of us think of Medusa, we think about feminine rage. We think about the fact that she was raped. We see her figure in mythology as one of the many faces of the feminine that was repressed and distorted by patriarchy. Medusa basically seems like a victim. And in the best-known story that we have, which is a story that we actually got from Ovid a little bit later, and I'm going to go into that in a minute, Medusa got screwed in three ways. First, she gets raped by Poseidon. Then, she gets screwed over by Athena, who takes revenge on Medusa for the rape, because she's upset because her temple was defiled. And thirdly, and finally, Medusa has gotten screwed by Western culture. But there's really a lot more to her than the snaky hair. So I said a minute ago that the rape from by Poseidon and the whole thing with Athena actually comes from Ovid, who is a Roman poet who reworked a lot of Greek myths later in order to fit them into his most famous book called The Metamorphosis. Now, I happen to like Ovid a lot, and I really appreciate his book. But it seems to me that Medusa was such a juicy character that he couldn't imagine not including her in, her book, in his book, and so he had to tweak her story to be one of transformation. So, enter Athena to be the villain, and the one who changes Medusa, who is otherwise a beautiful young woman, into a snake-headed monster. Well, we'll talk about that more also later on in this program. But let me just say, it's not my intention in telling you more about Medusa and how the ancient Greeks saw her. Uh, It's not my intention to discourage critiques of patriarchy. In fact, I think outrage is appropriate about the present ongoing atrocities and injustice against women and the feminine, as well as our historical repression. But I do think that it's time to ask ourselves, what is next? Now that we see it, Now that we have a grasp, at least a partial grasp, on what has been lost and how we have handled these themes and also people 
in the past. What do we do now? How do we, as individuals, and as a culture, and as a global community, reapproach the deep feminine and fully integrate the bountiful gifts that women have to offer? The fact that Medusa is such an ambiguous figure and the fact that the meaning of her stories are so layered makes her a marvelous partner for this kind of musing because there are lots of different directions to go and there's a great deal of food for thought. And we have started that kind of musing here in our community with two events about Medusa that are happening this month that are sponsored by the High Desert Mythological Roundtable with the support of Radio Free Joshua Tree and the Listening Lounge. So, number one, an art show called Musing on Medusa, Art Inspired by the Myth of Medusa. This is a community art show. Many amazing artists have contributed work to this show. And the opening is tonight from 5 to 8 o'clock at the Listening Lounge as part of the Second Saturday Art Walk in downtown Joshua Tree. The show will run through April 6th. But I really hope that you can make it to the opening tonight. There's going to be a People's Choice Award, so come in and take a look at the artwork and cast your vote for your favorite piece. And there's also going to be a headdress contest. So anybody who wants to come as Medusa, however you imagine that, feel free to do it. And I think the way it's going to run is we're going to have everybody who comes with a headdress gather in the lounge at 7 p.m., so midway through the opening reception, to have a little vote. Um, And there will be a people's choice hurrah for the most creative headdress as well. So that's tonight, Musing on Medusa, Art Inspired by the Myth of Medusa. Next Saturday, March 15th, is Medusa, a spoken word event featuring high and low desert poets, reading works, again, inspired by the myth of Medusa, and this is going to be followed by an open mic. It's also at the Listening Lounge from 7 to 9 p.m. So that's next Saturday, March 15th. And I think we can expect a provocative and fun evening. There's a really amazing list of poets who have agreed to participate. And I'll just mention that if you have a contribution for the open mic, please remember that performances are going to be limited to three minutes. So time your open mic contribution to three minutes, please. So Medusa and Medusa and Medusa and Medusa, and to get you started in your own investigation of this figure, I'm going to tell you a little bit about who Medusa actually was to the ancient Greeks. I invite you to sit back and relax and just See which details in this story strike you, because they can provide some clues to where you might find Medusa operating in your life today. 
So here's what has been told of Medusa herself, taken from Hesiod and Apollodorus. Medusa, we're told, was the daughter of ancient sea deities. Her father, Forkis, was also called Old Man of the Sea, and Hesiod tells us that Forkis was a son of Gaia, so he was very old, and that makes Medusa granddaughter of Gaia. Medusa and her parents predated the Olympians, Zeus and Athena and all of those others that you're familiar with, and we're also told that she was born with those snakes, girdling her head and body. She was also born with golden wings, boar tusks, and hands of brass. Medusa had two sisters who were just like her in every respect but one. Medusa was mortal, and her sisters were immortal. So, Medusa and her sisters were three ancient sea goddesses. The Greeks called them Gorgons. Gorgon means terrible, and the sight of any Gorgon turned one into stone. But terrible, in this Greek sense, means the cause of fear and trembling. So we're talking about the awe-inspiring, the numinous. The other that strikes fear, not necessarily the horrifying and the ugly. In fact, Medusa was sometimes described as beautiful, and that theme entered into uh, tellings of her story very early on. The three Gorgon sisters lived in a cave in the land beyond every place at the very edge of the world, a place where there was no sun and no moon. Their land and their the entrance to their cave was guarded by the Greyi, which was another set of three daughters who were also born to Forkies, and these three, the second trio, were sisters of the Gorgons. They were called the Greyi, which means the gray-haired ones, because they were born with gray hair. We are also told that they resembled swans and that they had one eye and one tooth to share between the three of them, which is strange, yes. But still, many said that they were quite beautiful. So Medusa and her Gorgon sisters and the three gray-haired sisters lived in this seclusion. And this is where she was when the hero, Perseus, arrived. In most versions of that story, Medusa was beheaded by Perseus, who was sent to fetch her head by King Polydectus, who was not a good king. And I'm going to tell the story of Perseus. Anyway, Perseus succeeded in killing Medusa, because he had the help of Athena and Hermes. They both loaned him power objects that gave him superhero powers, like the Cloak of Invisibility, for example. And Athena gave him her highly polished shield to use as a mirror, 
so that he could cut off Medusa's head without actually looking at her. Now, as I mentioned before, it was the Roman poet Ovid who later revised Medusa's story. And in Ovid's version, Medusa was a beautiful young priestess who served Athena in her holy temple. One day, she was raped in the temple by the god Poseidon. And Athena was very angry at this action taking place on her sacred ground. Of course, she couldn't do anything to Poseidon. And so she punished Medusa by turning her hair into snakes and making her so terrifying and ugly and dangerous that everyone shunned her. And so then, of course, Perseus was the champion who slayed her, and she became a fitting subject for Ovid's book, which is about transformations. Now, Medusa and her sisters were asleep when Perseus arrived. He slipped in very quietly, and using the shield as a mirror, he found Medusa and cut off her head with one clean swipe. She was pregnant by Poseidon, and out from her decapitated body sprung the winged horse Pegasus and Chrysor, a golden sword-wielding giant. Now, we don't hear very much about Chrysor after his miraculous birth, but Pegasus was an honored animal, and it's said that he churned the fountains on Mount Helicon that sustained the muses. Perseus had several adventures with Medusa's head on his way home. He rescued the princess Andromeda from a sea monster, and he managed to turn some of his deadly enemies into stone, including the king Polydectus, who sent him on this dangerous mission. But when he was all done, he gave the power objects and Medusa's head to the goddess Athena. Athena put Medusa's head on her breastplate, and there are many, many images that depict her with the Gorgon's head. As it turns out, Medusa's blood was also very potent stuff. I mean, it's interesting that her head was just as dangerous without her body (laughs) as it was when it was attached. In fact, maybe more so. It certainly was more well-traveled. But this blood was very special. Blood from the left vein was a deadly poison, and blood from the right vein could bring the dead back to life. Athena gave Medusa's blood to Asclepius, who was a son of Apollo and the god of healing. So does Perseus seem like kind of a twerp? You know, sneaking into her cave on the distant edge of nowhere and cutting off her head when she was asleep? And yet he got assistance from Athena and Hermes both. Now, the Greek gods weren't necessarily known for their ethics. In fact, ethics, that's not even really a relevant term when you're talking about them. But let's take a little bit closer look at Perseus and his story. Because it's really Perseus' story and his killing of Medusa 
that has made Medusa who she is, in our imagination, anyway. Now, Perseus's story begins with an oracle that was delivered to his grandfather, King Acrisius. King Acrisius asked the oracle how he could have sons, and the oracle told him that he wasn't going to have any, but his daughter, Danae, would have a son. However, little glitch, that boy was going to kill him. So, King Acrisius locks his daughter Danae up in a bronze underground chamber. And there's some intimation that maybe his brother, her uncle, had already been with her. But in any event, she gets locked up in this underground chamber with her nurse. And Zeus comes to her as a stream of golden coins and impregnates her. Baby Perseus is born, and Danae and the nurse conspire to raise him in secret, but he cries and is discovered. Acrisius will not believe that Zeus is the father. You know, he's, he just can't, you know, whatever. And I don't know that that would have necessarily changed anything in terms of the oracle. So he puts his daughter and her baby in a wooden box and set them out to sea. And after some time in the water, they landed on the island of Seraphos, where they were befriended by the fisherman named Dictes. So if this whole baby in a box on the water sounds familiar, yes, yes, it's a common motif. Now, Polydectus is the fisherman's brother. And Polydectus, you heard his name before, he's the king on this island of Seraphos. And after some years, after Perseus has grown to be a young man, the king develops this lustful yearning for Danae, for the young man's mother. And she is not interested in him. Or maybe it's the son Perseus has a very careful eye on her. But in any event, Polydectus is thwarted in his attempts to get at the mother. And so he comes up with this plan. He throws a feast and all of the noblemen and his male subjects are gathered together and he announces that he's going to marry Hippodamia, who is a princess from another land, but he's lying. And he asks these assembled guests, so I'm going to get married. What gifts will you bring me? What do you think is fit for a king? What about horses? And rashly, Perseus yells out, Hey, I'll bring you anything, even the head of Medusa. Because, of course, he's wanting to encourage this marriage in the hope that it will protect his mother from unwanted advances. Well, Polydectus decides that horses are his gift of choice, knowing full well that Perseus doesn't have any horses. And so when everyone shows up and gives the king the requisite horse, he turns to Perseus and says, okay, since you can't do that, then guess what? I'm going to take you up on your bold pledge to bring me Medusa's head. So go and and get me Medusa's head. And this is how Perseus ends up on this dangerous mission. The gods are watching all of this and they 
see all of this happening. And so Athena and Hermes decide that they're going to help Perseus. So I mentioned power objects earlier. Um, Hermes gives Perseus his winged sandals so that he'll be super, super, super fast. And he gives him a curved sword. Athena gives him the shield, but she also tells him where he can find the Grey and how to identify Medusa from the other two sisters. And they also give him some clues about how to work with the Grey to find the Stygian nymphs. And I didn't mention them before, but in Perseus's story, they're important because they hold on to some very important powers that belong to Hades, who is the god of the underworld. So Perseus makes his way to the Grey and he asks them where he might find these nymphs. And, you know, they don't want to help him. I mean, they're guardians. They're they're supposed to keep out the uninitiated, so you know, they're not going to make it easy. And the one sister says, oh, I'm sorry, young man. And then the sister sitting next to her says, uh, give me the eye, sister. I, I want to check out our visitor. And so she hands her sister the eye. And that sister looks him over and says, yeah, sorry, we can't help you, son. And then, of course, the third sister wants to see Perseus, too, but now he sees what's going on. And so when she takes out the eye to hand it to the third sister, he snatches it and threatens to throw it in the ocean if they don't tell him where he can find the nymphs. And they tell him. And then he says, and by the way... How about the Gorgons? And, well, you, you know, it was a pretty high price to pay. The one and only eye they had. And so they told him what he needed to know about that, too. Now, in some stories, he very politely gives the eye back. And in others, he very rudely throws it away anyway. But in any event, he goes and he finds these nymphs. And they give him the Helmet of Invisibility that belongs to Hades, and they give him a wallet or a bag, basically, to put Medusa's head in. Well, from this point, the story proceeds as you have already heard. Perseus, who now has very fleet feet and can be invisible and can see Medusa without looking at her and has a sword and has something to put her head in, shows up at the cave and sneaks up on Medusa and kills her. And when he does this, Pegasus and Chrysior jump out and her sisters wake up, the two immortal Gorgons. And they run after him, but there's no way they're going to catch him because he's super fast and he puts the helmet on and he turns invisible. So he gets this divine help and he succeeds. Now, on the way home, I mentioned earlier that Perseus has a couple of adventures, and one of them is saving the princess Andromeda. There was a little problem in Andromeda's kingdom, 
and her father was told that he was going to have to sacrifice the daughter, and so they had chained her naked out on some rocky cliffs where she was being menaced by a sea monster. And Perseus sees this. He's flying overhead, you know, carrying the bag. He sees this girl. He falls madly in love with her. And he swoops down. And the monster is so distracted by his shadow on the water that he manages to chop its head off. And then he rescues Andromeda. And he goes to her parents and says, Okay, so I've solved your problem. Now I want to marry your daughter. And they say, okay, that's, yeah, that seems fair. The only problem is that Andromeda had already been promised to somebody else. And when this other suitor showed up, who I believe was also an uncle of hers, with all of his friends, Perseus had to do some quick thinking. And what did he do? He whipped out Medusa's head and turned them all to stone. So then he and Andromeda went on their way. There are various stories about him laying the head down like on the coast of Libya and creating all this red coral. There are stories about drops of blood scattering over the continent of Africa and creating a lot of snakes. Ultimately, Perseus and Andromeda get back to his homeland, the island of Seraphis, and he, where he discovers that his mother has taken refuge in the holy temple in order not to be assaulted by King Polydectus. And so Perseus once again gets out the famous head and turns Polydectus to stone. So I don't know about you, but I hear this story and I see a lot of support for feminine aspects Certainly somebody who's looking out for his mother. And so if you remember what I was saying at the beginning of this program, you know, is it time for us to move beyond the analysis or the judgment of patriarchy? You know, can we just accept that that is in fact where we've been and start considering what comes next? Because I think the story of Perseus raises the possibility that this whole move, if you see it from a collective, from the the perspective of the collective psyche, maybe has been necessary. I mean, who is Medusa? I don't know. But if she does represent the great mother, as many have suggested, and she represents the intimate relationship between life and death, and also instinctual nature, and the undifferentiated dispensing of life and death, then maybe this is another one of those eating the apple in order to become conscious as human beings and individuals type of story. I don't know, but that's kind of where I'm leaning these days. Now, I am talking at the level of the collective psyche, so I am definitely not dismissing all of the terrible, terrible, terrible things that have happened to women and are continuing to happen. I hope that is clear. To go back to the oracle there, as it turns out, he does, in fact, kill his grandfather, unintentionally. But it's one of those classic motifs in Greek mythology. The grandfather hears that Perseus is coming back, 
because Perseus decides to go back to his real homeland, he leaves and goes to a, a friend's kingdom where he discovers that there's been a death and there are funeral games going on. And it just so happens that Perseus also hears about the death, also decides to play his respects, shows up at the funeral games and throws a discus and kills his grandfather without intending or knowing that he's doing it. There are more stories about Perseus in Greek mythology, but that's where we're going to stop for today and Myth in the Mojave for this week. If you have questions about today's program or mythology in general, you can find Myth in the Mojave on Facebook or feel free to email me at mythicmojo at gmail.com. Radio Free Joshua Tree and Myth in the Mojave are made possible by generous donations from Mojave Wi-Fi, Joshua Treats Ice Cream, Pappy and Harriet's, Peter Spur Realty, and listeners like you. Please support this unique community-based station by clicking on the Donate button at www.rfjt.org. Special thanks to Travis Rosenberg for my theme music and to you for listening. Please tune in next week. And in the meantime, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.